Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. The purpose of a mission statement. So this was fun, a fun little game that we played. The purpose of a mission statement is to bring clarity, right? It's to bring clarity to the purpose that an orga- for, for which an organization exists, right? So that everything that an organization or an entity or group does should align with their mission statement. It, it provides some clarity. And the best entities don't just have a statement. See, we put ours on the wall out there. You got, if you haven't noticed, there's a statement on the wall in the hallway. The best, state, the best companies don't have just a mission statement on the wall. They have a story to illustrate their mission in action, right? So let me tell you a fun story of Southwest. So there was a, there was a guy who was traveling on Southwest. Anybody ever travel on Southwest? You know they like to have like fun, right? They're, they, they make jokes. Um, I was riding on a Southwest flight. It was 6 a.m. Um, almost no more than 20 years ago to come see her. And uh, it's 6 a.m., nobody's really awake. We're all getting on the flight. And... Um, the flight attendant said, everybody on the right side of the airplane, put your face in the window so Northwest can see what a full flight looks like. If you're not familiar with Southwest, that's about, that about captures it. Um, so there was a businessman that was traveling on Southwest, and, and he was very upset that the flight attendants were just having so much fun, and, and this, seemed, this is serious. You have to take this seriously. And you're having, your flight attendants are just having too much fun, so he, he sent a letter to the CEO of Southwest that said, if you don't tell your flight attendants to take this more seriously, I'm going to find another company to fly on. What do you think the CEO did? He wrote a letter back with three words that said, we'll miss you. Because we're friendly. This is who we are. There's stories that illustrate the mission. And Jesus had a mission statement that was better captured in stories. He has excellent stories, and today what we're going to look at is some stories that Jesus tells that capture an excellent picture of the mission that Jesus was on. We began this series last week uh, for the season of Lent that we called All In, and the season of Lent, if you're not familiar, is a season of preparation It's a season getting us ready for Easter. And uh, on Easter, of course, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, who was crucified, dead, buried, but then raised to life again. And so this is the celebration of Easter. But if you've ever done anything, uh, you, you, you can arrive at Easter not prepared. You can arrive at Easter and just sort of crash into the holiday, and then you get there, and you kind of get through the day, and you're like, man, that didn't seem as impactful as it should be for a celebration of someone who was dead and is now alive. Lent is a season that the church has created so that we prepare ourselves for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And so we began this last week. If you weren't here, there are still cards. I offer you guys a tool. There's a card in the back. And in the season of Lent, often what we will do is we'll take a practice. doesn't even have to be a bad practice. And we'll lay it down for the sake of picking up a practice that helps us follow Jesus better. So, for example, some of you would say, I'm going to lay down my practice of social media, my incessant scrolling, 
And in place of that, maybe I'm going to read Scripture. That would be an example of a practice that people engage in for Lent. Or maybe, you know, you spend three hours every night. You might spend three hours binge-watching Netflix every night. Anybody going to own that one? Um, I was the only one with my hand up. Uh, maybe you watch Netflix for like hours at a time, and you would say, you know what? For the season of Lent, I'm going to lay down my Netflix binge, and instead I'm going to watch, or not watch, pray. I'm going to spend time in prayer. So it's laying down a practice to make space to engage in another practice so that we would become closer to Jesus. And there's a card back there that will help you uh, think about that. You can take that home if you'd like. But in this series, as we're trying to help ourselves take steps to be better disciples of Jesus, in this series what we're going to do is we're going to follow Jesus as he goes to the cross. And from uh, chapter 9 of the, of the book of Luke on to the end, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem knowing he's going to be killed for the sake of the sin of all humanity. And so he sets his face, and, and in the last chapters as you lead up, to the cruci crucifixion of Jesus, what you see is Jesus teaching really clearly about what it is to be a disciple. And so we're looking at, at these passages where Jesus talks about what it means to be a disciple. Last week we talked about the cost to be a disciple. If you missed that one, YouTube didn't love us last week, so you can't watch it, but it's still on the podcast. But we talked about the cost of being all in with Jesus. We said what Jesus calls everyone to, if they want to be a disciple, is complete surrender, that it costs everything to be a disciple of Jesus. And today what I want you to see is what has Jesus invited us to? What is the mission that Jesus needs disciples for? What is the mission that he invites us into? I'm calling this message All In with God's Mission. Would you pray with me before we turn to Scripture? So, Lord, I do welcome you into this space. And, Lord, you have been so faithful, and you continue to be, and we trust you today, Jesus. So would you come, would you reveal your heart to us? God, would you show us who you are and your character? And will we hear afresh, maybe for the first time, but maybe for the hundred and first time or thousand and first time, your invitation to join you on your mission. Come, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. We're going to look at Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to Luke chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you about something we looked at and I talked about last week. Jesus was not content with people who just followed him. Do you remember this last week? The, the crowd that had followed Jesus, that had, uh, had seen him heal the sick and raise the dead and cast demons out from people. The, the, the one who had, teach, had teachings that were just so amazing. The, the Sermon on the Mount that had captivated the attention of people. And he had amassed a following. Some of them, I think, were just there because he had like... He sticks a finger in the eye of the Pharisees who some other people didn't like. And so he was like, well, this, this, I like this. He's picking on the guys I don't like. Um, and so he had a, a mass of people who were following him. And as we looked last week, he turned to this mass of people who you would think, you know, they're following him. They're going where he's going. They're doing what, you know, they're like, they're amazed by him. They're blown away by the things he's doing. And he turns and he says, unless you lay down everything, you can't be my disciple. 
He wasn't content with people who just follow him and, and, and be fans of Jesus and like Jesus, but it was, it was a, an invitation to surrender everything, that the cost was everything. And being a disciple is what it means to belong to Jesus. And so this was the invitation that we talked about last week, to be a disciple. And to be a disciple is something like being an apprentice. Being an apprentice is working alongside someone who's already doing the, the, the job, the task, the trade, so that you might one day actually become like them, that you would think like them and do the, the work the way that they do it. And so Jesus invites people into a relationship where they would become like him. It's interesting that, it, that if you look at the word Christian, it only appears twice, I believe, in the New Testament. The word itself means little Christ's. When people called Christians Christians, what they were saying is, you are like Christ. There's an interesting phenomenon that happens in 21st century America, though, because there's, there's an understanding of what it means to be a Christian that doesn't align with Scripture. Namely, that you can be a Christian in 21st century America and never become like Christ, which the Bible would say would mean you're not a Christian. If you don't look like Jesus, if people wouldn't mistake you for someone like Jesus, they would say you're not a Christian. And in, in 21st century America, that has become completely normal. That discipleship, that becoming like Jesus has become optional in our day. But in Scripture, it means to become like Jesus, to be formed in who you are so that you would look like Jesus you would think like Jesus. You would act like Jesus. You would do the things Jesus does. You would be on the mission Jesus is on. So we get to our passage. As, as Jesus is teaching, Luke chapter 15. And I'm just going to walk through this. It's really long. Some of you will be really familiar with it. But I'm going to read it a couple verses at a time. Luke chapter 15. Right after Jesus said, you got to lay down everything if you want to be my disciple. Verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I want to pause here for a second. Jesus is always poking at the Pharisees. This is a constant fight. And the battlegrounds of this particular fight in chapter 15 is who Jesus is hanging out with. Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, and you have to understand the difference in perspective of what Jesus thought God was about and what the Pharisees thought God was about. The Pharisees believed from the Old Testament that the kingdom, the rule and reign of God, would begin whenever everyone obeyed the law. When everyone does the right thing, when everyone is obedient to the law in the Old Testament, then God will rule and reign. He will intervene on our behalf. And so the Pharisees would keep to the letter of the law as best they could. And if anyone was, would do something outside of the law, those people would be cast out. And if we can set enough of them aside, we can establish a group that's holy enough, that's righteous enough that God will come and intervene on our behalf. This was the belief of the Pharisees. So we need to teach people the law. We need to help them obey the law. We need to help them do the right things. By the way, those aren't bad things. 
I think a lot of times we look at the Pharisees and we're like, they're bad. No, they actually care a lot about being completely set apart for God. Those aren't bad things. The way they went about it, though, is they said, if you aren't on this train, we keep you out. And so the Pharisees thought, if we can just get enough people doing the right things and keep out the, right, the wrong people, then God will intervene. So here comes Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah over and over and over. I am the one that God has sent to be king, to intervene on your behalf. And the Pharisees watch, and they're like, you're hanging out with the wrong people. You have invited people who are sinners, who are tax collectors. If you don't know a tax collector in the first century, the Romans were in charge of the Jewish people. And the Romans recruited Jews to tax their own people. The way that they would do this is they would say, the Romans would say, I'm just making these numbers up, but the Romans would say, you got to collect a 20% tax and give it to us. The tax collector would collect 40%, give the Romans 20 and keep 20 for themselves. Tax collectors were often wealthy, but they got wealthy by basically extorting their own people. And so in first century, uh, Jewish people rejected tax collectors because they were stealing from their own people. And people who are sinners, people who have sold out on their birthright as people of the law. These are the people who are supposed to be kept out. They're supposed to be kept out. They've squandered their birthright. We are God's people. We've been chosen as God's people. We've been given the law. And because you have rejected the law, you have squandered your birthright. And so the Pharisees rejected them. But Jesus welcomed them. And there's another thing that it says here. It says, this man's welcome sinners. It's not just like he's got them hanging out with him. He eats with them. How many of you invite different people, weird people, to your house? Like two of you. Okay. In-laws don't count. Good question. We needed to get a little clarity there. Jesus is sharing the table with these people who are supposed to be outcast. The significance here is Jesus is saying we are equals. To share table fellowship, to sit at the table and eat a meal with someone in the first century was akin to saying, I accept you as an equal to myself. So not only was Jesus not pushing these people away, he was welcoming them. And he was saying, you're my equals. And the question, at this, the battleground here is over, who is it that God cares about? What's important to God? What is it that God desperately cares about? And they're very upset. And then Jesus begins to tell his stories to illustrate his mission. He tells three stories. Read these, beginning at verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Jesus tells a story to illustrate what God cares about. And he does it in a way that everybody will understand. He's like, you all got, you know, sheep and goats. You got, you got animals. 
If you have a hundred of these sheep and one of them, because sheep are stupid, they just fall off and they go all over the place. They're just mindless creatures. You know how they do. If you have one of your hundred that goes missing, don't you go looking for it? Don't you leave the 99 in the care of someone else and go looking for the one? You know how this is. And of course, the people that he's telling the story to are supposed to go, well, yeah, of course we do. Because that sheep has value. That sheep matters. So of course we go looking for that sheep. And Jesus says, good, I'm glad you understand that. In the same way that you value that sheep that's missing. And you go looking for it and you throw a party when you find it. In the same way, God rejoices over one sinner who comes back to relationship with him. It's the same. This is one in a hundred sheep. Jesus says it's that valuable in the same way. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He takes a breath long enough to continue the story. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus says, you guys know the story about the sheep? What about this one? There's a woman has ten coins. Each of them represents about a day's wages. And what's likely true is that this would be the family's savings. She's lost one-tenth of her savings. If you've ever lost money on the stock market, you know how this works. One-tenth of her, her life savings, her family's wealth is gone. It's missing. You guys know how this would work. She'd light a candle. She'd sweep it up. She'd find that lost coin because it has value. And when she finds it, there's rejoicing. I found one-tenth of my family's wealth. Celebrate with me. And of course, the response is supposed to be, yeah, we get that. That's what we would do. We would celebrate. And Jesus says, in the same way, because that one coin has so much value that you celebrate when you find it in the same way. God rejoices with the angels when one sinner turns to him and comes to him. Now, both of these cases, the sheep and, and the coin, are not willful lostness. She didn't, like, lose the coin on purpose and, you know, it's not like a hide-and-go-seek game. The sheep didn't, like, it was not a willful lostness. Sheep are just stupid. In both of these cases, the lostness was, like, accidental. But because of the value of the thing that's lost... The owner goes and finds it and celebrates when it's found. And Jesus takes another breath. There was one in a hundred. There was one in ten. He's like, what if it was one in two? Verse 11. Jesus continued. He didn't pause, by the way, and go, hey, wait a minute. Do you guys understand or do I need to tell another story? He just continues. 
There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Pause for a second. There's something happening here that most of the time we miss. At the end of a father's life, the father would divide his, uh, his estate among the, the, the sons. And so there would be an extra share for the older son. So if there's two sons, you divide it in three and you give the older son two and you give the younger son one. This happens, you can divide this stuff beforehand, but the giving of the wealth happens after the father is dead. So when the son shows up to his dad and he says, I want my share, what he's saying is, you're better off to me dead. I wish you were dead so that I could have what's mine. This is not accidental lostness. This is willful. The appropriate response in the first century to this request, the appropriate response, he should have backhanded that kid, right? Should have made him forget the next six days. Like, how dare you bring shame on this family to make that request? The, I said more than I should have maybe. I don't hit my kids. <laughs> Whew. Catch that online. I don't hit my kids. The, the shame that it brings on a father for your son to say, I wish you were dead, should have resulted in him kicking him out at the very least. The surprise in this moment is that the father gives him what he asks for. Like, who does that? So he gives him what he asks for, and then the son goes off and it says, squandered it in wild living. You can imagine any number of things, and you probably aren't far off. Anything that the Pharisees would have said, the sinners have done. You know, think of like a 1990s rap video. Things you're not supposed to watch. Squandered it in wild living. We pick it up there. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, so he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. The slide here is maybe obvious and maybe not. He was the son of a wealthy landover, uh, landowner in Israel who would provide him anything and everything he ever needed. He took all of his inheritance, went to a country that was not Israel, went to a body of people who were different. He ended up wasting all of his money, and then a famine happened. Right? Isn't that how it always works? Right? When you're like, I've spent it all, and, and my, day, my income should match my outflow, but... And then, a, and then a famine happens. So he hires himself out to feed pigs. Jewish people, for Jewish people, pigs are unclean. So the fact that he would work anywhere around pigs is a further slide down 
And he gets all the way to the point where he's so hungry, he's longing to eat the things the pigs are eating. Do you see the slide in this story? This is like the worst of the worst. Jesus is like really laying it on thick. This guy's so bad. You get to this place. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. You know this always happens? Like it always happens, right? If you're like, you know, you have a moment of clarity. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. Hey, I'm struggling with this addiction. I'm addicted to, to, to pills. I'm addicted to heroin. I'm addicted to alcohol. I have this addiction, and it hasn't killed me yet. And I have a moment of clarity. It's a grace of God that you get a moment of clarity. You're doing the things that you know you shouldn't be doing. I've been cheating on my taxes for years and getting away with it, and I have a moment of clarity. And that's the time you have to act. Because in all the conversations I've had with people, when they get their moment of clarity, it's only a moment. It's only a moment. It's a grace of the Lord. It's an invitation of God to say, now's the time. Now's the time. Don't wait. Because you know what happens when you wait? You find reasons to justify it. And the slide continues. You get a moment of clarity. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. You can imagine, he's like, I'm not eating here. <laughs> I'm longing for food that the pigs are eating. And he has this moment of clarity. He's like, wait a minute. All the people that my father ever hired, he fed them. So at least if I can come in as a servant of my father, not a son, I know I don't deserve that. I told him to his face that I wish he was dead. I know I don't deserve that. But I also know that my father was kind to those people. If I can manage to get hired as a servant, he'll feed me. So he rehearses a speech, right? He's like, my father, I have, I have sinned against heaven and against you. You can sort of see him, right? Like this speech. It's like, I have to get, get, get the tone right. Father. No, no, not like that. Father. No, that's a little too presumptive. Father. Yeah, that's it. That's the right one. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And he's rehearsing this speech, if, if I could just be one of your hired hands. So he gets up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What's the posture of a father that sees the son a long way off. It's the posture of a father that's like, maybe one day he'll come home. I have hope that one day he'll return. 
I've been standing here waiting and watching the horizon in hopes that one day my son will return. And I've been watching and waiting. And after some long period of time, he says, is it my son? He's been waiting desperately. And then he does a very undignified thing. In the first century, no father runs anywhere. It's like me. <laughs> a first century father's just like me. I don't run anywhere. If I'm running, you all should really be running. In the first century, a father sits and people come to him. But he sees his son and he hikes up, bears his legs, which is a shameful thing to do, and he takes off running. And you can imagine the son is like, what's about to happen? I haven't got a chance to get my speech out yet. i got to justify myself. And he starts the speech, doesn't he? The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He starts his speech. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you can imagine the father going, enough of that. We're not doing that anymore. He throws the ring on his finger. He throws the... the, the um, can't read without my glasses anymore. He threw his arms around him, kissed him. He throws a, the best robe, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is what happens when lost people come home. This is what happens. Jesus says, this is what the father is like. Whatever it is you think God is like, this is what he's like. He's been watching. He's been waiting in hopes that one day you will come to your senses and come home. And he sees you far across the distance and he runs to you. This is what the Father is like. And every last one of us walked up to God like, well, hold on, let me get it right. God, I've done a lot of things. And he's like, none of that. I know all the things. And he doesn't restore him as a servant. He says, no, you're a son. You're a son. None of this servant stuff, none of this you come in as a slave stuff. You are a son of mine again. And they celebrate. There's a party. And everyone who's in the party has been talking to the Father for all those days while he's been waiting. And they know his heart. And they know how thrilled he is to have his son back. How thrilled he is to be made whole again. But the story doesn't stop there. Verse 25, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his, the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, a shameful, he's hosting a party and leaves it. But he, 
But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeying your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The son who stayed home and stayed as a son thought of himself as a slave. But the son who came back to be a slave was welcomed as a son. And the father says this. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the story stops there. Jesus doesn't say, do you all get it? In the same way that Southwest doesn't need to say what their mission statement is, the story tells the mission statement. It's a mic drop moment. And the way the story ends is, will you be about what the Father is about? Will you capture the heart of what the Father is about Because everybody who understands the heart of the Father is in the celebration when the sinner comes home. The question here to us, to all of us, is that the business we're about? Is that the business we're about? Maybe you're here and you're like, I I don't know what God's heart is like. Can I just say this is the heart of God? That he's been waiting for you. When I was in college, I was uh, not quite as far as the, uh, you know, wild living, but certainly well on my way. And there was a group of people who felt it important to welcome me. Who felt it really important that even though I, I showed up to campus ministry stuff, I was cussing at the people just to see if they'd get mad at me. I was the one that was talking about, oh, we're going to go drinking and blah, 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 right, doing the things. And what I wanted to know is, are you going to welcome me? And what my con- I was convinced that they would not welcome me. I was convinced was convinced that no Christian actually cared about people who weren't already Christians. And they welcomed me. And they didn't make a big deal of all the things I had done, all the ways that I had been far from God. They welcomed me. They let me talk to people. They let me be there. They loved me. And they celebrated when I came home. When I met Jesus, they celebrated. They were glad that I was there. My question to all of us, is that the business we're about? Because the people who know the heart of the Father are about that business. There's at least three possibilities in this room. There are some, you have not captured the heart of the Father. You didn't know he was looking for you. 
You didn't know he's been waiting. Maybe you were afraid that he's just going to do something to you. He's going to be cruel to you. When you come back, you're going to have to have your speech, and then he's going to let you have it. So you've stayed at a distance. You didn't know that the Father has been waiting, that he longs to welcome you. Maybe you're here and you're like, I so desperately want people who are far from God to be in relationship with him. And I live my life in that way. But then maybe there are some of you who would say, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't really care that much for sinners and outsiders. And can I just speak directly to you if that's you? I think if that's your posture, you have not yet been captured by the heart of the Father. And my encouragement to you, if that's who you are, is to repent and come and experience the embrace of the Father who wants a relationship with you in the same way that he wants a relationship with the one who's far from Jesus. Are we going to be a church that's about that? Will we be a people that it's about that? I don't want to do anything else. I was captured by the love of the Father in 2003. As a 22-year-old, wayward, trying to be cool for everybody. And I will do nothing else with my life but make space for people who are far from Jesus to encounter the love of the Father. And here's what I know. I'll do that for the rest of my life. But it's going to take more than just me to reach everyone in the city, everyone in the region, everyone in the different cities around here. I need help. Will we be a church that is passionate about seeing people come home, come to faith, come to know that they're loved? Will we be those people? And I'm going to end it in the same weird way that Jesus did. I'm just going to let that hang. Because I think that's the invitation to all of us. Here's what I want to do. Would you guys stand with me? I want us to make space to pray for those three groups of people. If you are someone who did not know that God's heart is for you, that God has seen the ways that you've been far from him, he knows all the things and yet he comes running for you because he loves you. And today, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a really long time you have understood that. I would like to invite you to pray a simple prayer of surrender to the love of God. And it's a simple prayer that just says sorry, thanks, and please. And I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself. You can just pray along with me. But we're all going to pray this. So if, if that's you, I would like to in invite you to pray with me now. And make this prayer your own. 
Jesus, I'm sorry for the way that I have been far from you. I'm sorry for all the ways that I have lived apart from a relationship with the Father. And even now I'm tempted to make my speech to justify myself. But Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have done everything necessary for me to be forgiven and to come into relationship with my Father. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on the cross. Thank you for your resurrection, how it is that you defeated death. Jesus, please forgive me, restore me, and renew me. And then friend, just say, Holy Spirit, please come and live inside of me. Make me new from the inside. Help me to receive the love of God. There's two other groups that I want us to pray for. Some of you have given your lives to helping people who are far from Jesus come home. And that looks all kinds of ways. It looks like being friends with people that church people say you shouldn't be friends with. It looks like caring for people who will never be able to pay you back. It looks like caring for all of the marginalized. It looks like caring for immigrants. It looks like being in relationship with, uh, with people who are different than you. But you've given your life to this. You've given your life to seeing people experience the love of God. And I want us to pray to bless that. But maybe you've seen that some people have come to faith, but maybe you've been sort of like discouraged and I want us to pray for you, to, that, that God would bless you, that God would multiply what he's put inside of you. The other group is if you are one that you would say, I don't share this heart for people who are far from Jesus. See, the, the, the reason that Jesus tells these stories, he says, this is what I'm about. People make Jesus about all kinds of other things. Jesus starts in Luke and tells Peter, you're going to fish for men. This is the point. We get to the end of Matthew. Go and make disciples. Part of making disciples is welcoming people into relationship with the Father. The beginning of Acts, the Holy Spirit gets poured out for the sake of reaching people who are far from the Father. This is the thing that Jesus is about. If you are someone that you would say, I don't share that conviction or that care for, I don't really care about people who are far from Jesus. I want us to pray for you too. Because God will give you that heart. But it starts by you receiving that love inside of yourself. And so if either of those are you, you already have surrendered your entire life to following Jesus and to welcoming others into relationship with him, or you are someone who doesn't care right now. You're like, it's just not on my heart to care for people who are far from Jesus. I want us to pray both for both of those groups. And so whichever group you're in, if you want to just open your hands, I want us to pray for you. Father, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you've 
waited for us, that you've welcomed us, that you've done everything necessary to welcome us into relationship with you. That you could begin to put things right in our lives and make us what you intended us to be. I'm thankful. And I'm thankful, God, that you invite us into that family business of of seeing others come to experience the love of God. And so for those in this room, Lord, who have given their lives to seeing people encounter the love of God, I pray right now that you would release, by the power of your Spirit, that you would multiply the effectiveness, the gifting, the passion that they have. God, I pray that you would lift the hearts of those who have grown weary in doing good. And I pray, Lord, for those that that there would be a legacy of many who have come to life with Jesus because of the faithfulness of a few. God, would you fill us with your Spirit? that signs and wonders would follow those who believe, Lord, that there would be a testimony in this world that you love this world, that you're making all things new again, that you're setting things right. Would you do it through the people here? Would you do it through the people that are watching this online and in the future? That by your spirit, you would empower us to bring the kingdom in its fullness. God, would you heal, would you save, would you deliver through us? Make us everything you intended us to be. And God, for those in this room who struggle to have a heart for people who are far from Jesus, I pray right now, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would invade their hearts with your love, that they would experience the depths of your love for them, that, Lord, that that it would be overwhelming That we wouldn't get sucked into side projects and other things that we think are important. But Lord, you would inflame our hearts with the things that you find important. God, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Give us a heart of the Father. Because this world, Lord, desperately needs to know that you love it. Desperately. But would you come? Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltoona.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona.